This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. You had a nice restful sleep last night? Feeling good? That's what you're looking for. There is new research out that says if you oversleep, you increase your risk for stroke. Now, at the same time, if you do this, you increase this. If you do this, how many times is red wine good for you and then red wine bad for you? We hear it over and over again. But we have an opportunity right now to talk with Dr. Sheila Garland about oversleeping and stroke. And the fact that those two things are kind of coming together in some new research. We'll talk about a lot of different sleeping habits, too. Dr. Garland, how are you? Oh, I'm great. How are you? Fantastic. Well-rested. In fact, my my fitness tracker even gave me an above 80 score. I don't get those very often because you know what? You get running around. Sleeping can sometimes be that, ah, I'll do that sometime later. And then some people will say when that later comes, they're sleeping in. They're, oh, they're in bed for 13 hours. And then hang on because here comes something that says, whoa, uh, you may not want to be sleeping too long. Long. What exactly are we finding about long sleeps? Well, we've known for some time that it's not more is not necessarily better when it comes to sleep. Um, so the optimal time does range, and it's different for one person. So whereas I might need eight hours, you might need seven. Um, but usually the range is anywhere from about six to nine hours tends to be the optimal range. Um, and when you start increasing your sleep um, and the time you spend in bed, what happens is your sleep becomes more fragmented. Um, and the fragmented sleep reduces sleep quality uh, and can actually make you feel worse. Really? Okay. So outside of, say, that, that nine-hour thing, let's say you sleep 10 or you sleep 11 or, or even you get into a half a day's sleep, that can make you feel bad. Can it have other effects too? Well, and so, again, we, we know that um, there are uh, people who sleep less than about six hours and people who sleep more than nine hours. Both of those kind of areas have been associated in both longitudinal and cross-sectional studies with um, poor health outcomes, um, both physical health problems as well as psychological health problems. So you see higher rates of mood disorders, um, but also I know recent evidence has uh, shown um, higher mortality, and now the latest study that came out was talking about um, incidence of stroke. Really? Okay. So... When we read things like that, we always say, yeah, I want to make sure I cut down on any way that I could suffer a stroke or any way that I'm kind of hurting myself without all the other stuff that we do on a daily basis. So what does this lead you to conclude? So it would lead us to conclude, I think it it becomes a little bit tricky because, you know, so we all know that, okay, not enough sleep is, is bad, but then, oh, I try and get more sleep and now too much sleep is also bad. So um, I would say that in recommending what individuals should do, it would be really to um, understand what is the optimal number of amount of sleep that would be optimal for them. And um, that is basically equal to how much do you have to sleep in order to feel good and function the following day. 
Um, and so that could be for somebody seven hours. And so getting more is not going to help them. It's only going to hurt them. Um, or it could be eight and a half hours or nine hours for somebody. Um, if you're sleeping for more than that and you're also finding yourself dragging, um, I would suggest people uh, talk to their doctor, rule out any other problems which may be contributing to uh, sleeping longer uh, throughout the day. One of the issues in the research is that um, we don't have a good understanding of whether it is the uh, longer sleep that is contributing to the poor health outcomes or poor health that is uh, making you need to sleep longer. So it's kind of like we don't know the chicken or egg answer there. Um, but it would be overall to rule out any other things that could be contributing to problems with sleeping, uh, sleeping too long, um, optimizing health that way. We are talking with Dr. Sheila Garland, a registered clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Memorial University in Newfoundland and Labrador. And we're looking at the idea that too much sleep can be problematic and some of the statistics that show it can increase a person's risk of stroke. Some people will sleep all at the same time. Others, they enjoy those naps. How does napping kind of factor into everything? Well, so some people are are really strict on napping. I'm not one of those people. I say that, you know, everything is good in moderation and as long as it's done correctly. So um, what you need to have in order to have a good quality sleep is you need to have enough sleep pressure built up throughout the day in order for you to fall asleep quickly and stay asleep longer. So basically what that means is if I am a regular seven-hour sleeper and I get, uh, if you take seven away from 24, you need 17 hours of sleep pressure to build up before you're likely to fall asleep again. So that means if I wake up at seven o'clock, I'm not likely to fall asleep until 12 or midnight. If I go to bed too early, if I go to bed at 10 um, and I don't have enough sleep pressure built up, my sleep is more likely to be fragmented. Um, and it's going to be poor sleep quality. The same thing happens if we nap too close to our um, bedtime. So if we're taking a nap in the afternoon or early evening, that's going to weaken, lessen our sleep pressure. And again, it's going to impact our ability to fall asleep or it's going to impact our sleep quality. You can get away with napping as long as it is done early um, in the afternoon. So like before two maybe, and then or, or in the late morning. And you also want to make sure that your nap is short. So um, because of the way we cycle through our sleep stages, um, we don't want to get into that deep, deep sleep or we're going to end up feeling worse. We're going to be mentally foggy. So the optimal sleep time is about 30 to 40 minutes or so. Um, So sleeping, um, having a nap, um, 30 minutes at, you know, lunchtime or something like that isn't going to hurt you, but it's likely to hurt you if it's too close to when you actually intend on falling asleep or if it's too long. Dr. Garland, it used to be... Sleep was sleep. Now we know a lot more about sleep. We know about kind of the cycle that the body goes through. How important is it to get deep sleep? And for anybody who does wear a fitness tracker, how accurate are those things when recording it? <laughs> yes. So um, there, sometimes too much information can be um, hurtful because it leads people to um, worry about things that they shouldn't worry about. So uh, there's a research paper coming uh, that has been published um, talking about something called orthosomnia, and that is the pursuit of the perfect sleep. And it's really pathologized by the um, wearing of these activity trackers because they make people worry about things that they wouldn't have worried about before they started monitoring it. 
So um, in terms of accuracy, um, there isn't great evidence to say that they are completely accurate. Uh, they use a very a variety of metrics to try and assume sleep stages, but the only way that you can really be accurate in terms of what stage of sleep you are is by measuring the electrical activity of your brain. So if you're not wearing it via EEG on your brain, it's not a very good um, measure of sleep stages. Basically, what it's trying to get at is it's trying to measure heart rate as well as movement um, and extrapolate from that what stage of sleep that you would be in. Um, and oftentimes I will have people coming in saying, my, my Fitbit's telling me that I'm waking up all this time. That has to be bad. And my question is usually to them, you know, well, how do you feel during the day? And they say, well, I feel fine. And I say, well, are you able to concentrate? How's your mood? How's your energy level? And they say, oh, well, that's good. But my, you know, I need to reduce these um, amount of time I'm waking up. This is a problem. So I'm, it's really not a problem. If people are functioning very well, it's not a problem. So I wouldn't say that they're very good night, right now for measuring sleep. They are pretty good for physical activity, but not sleep. Great point. Okay, and as a final thing, we're talking with Dr. Sheila Garland, a registered clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Memorial University in Newfoundland and Labrador. So the goal is to kind of figure out how much sleep we need based on how well we feel when we get in the morning and then aim to get that all in a row. Um, yes, and the worst thing that you can do is to um, vary your wake-up time. You're, you should be trying to keep a relatively consistent wake-up time because your wake-up time determines your bedtime. So trying to keep that rather consistent, trying to not spend excessive amounts of time in bed. So really um, use your bed for sleep and sex only. Um, and don't be afraid of going to bed tired because that tiredness um, can make sure that we do have a good quality solid sleep. Dr. Garland? Have a great sleep tonight, and have a great afternoon. Thank you. You too. Dr. Sheila Garland. Dr. Garland is from Memorial University in Newfoundland and Labrador, so find that sweet spot for sleeping. And uh, these things that we have on our arm, yeah, I, I know it's not as accurate as it could be, especially for sleep. But at the same time, it, it gives you a little bit of a guide. She says don't pay too much attention. In fact, there's literature coming out that will support that in just a little bit. Time to talk some music. A Grammy Award nominee. Not many people can say they are that. A Juno Award winner and someone who has a great perspective on where the music industry is right now. Dan Brodbeck is a Canadian recording engineer and producer. He's the coordinator of the Music Industry Arts Program at Fanshawe College. And he joins us now. Dan, first off, let's talk Grammy because congratulations for being nominated. How do you even find out you've been nominated for a Grammy? Does somebody show up at your front door in a gold suit? <laughs> it, to be honest, it's a, it was a text from a friend um, that, that happened to be watching the nomination, uh, like the, the announcements. Um, it, it's not the, uh, like, it's an it's a, um, album award. So the artist is the, is the nominee and would be winner. So are the producers and so are the engineers and so is the mastering engineer, um, as long as you're on 51% or more of the running order. So it's not, um, they don't contact, if there was 14 people on a team, they don't contact 14 people. In fact, they found out uh, through him being tagged in a tweet, the guitar player. 
So <laughs> it wasn't because they weren't expecting it. It was put, it was submitted in like over the summer sometime and they thought it was sort of a waste of time. So they just didn't think about it. It, it wasn't like they were waiting by the phone or anything like that. So um, I ended up just a friend of mine told me. So once I confirmed that I thought, and I, I, was, I confirmed that the, um, the whole team gets nominated um, when you, for an album award or, or record of the year as well. Um, that uh, so then I could finally have my shirts printed up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> nice. Well, no, hey, you definitely should. I mean, but you're no stranger to different award nominations. I mean, you've won a Juno. Uh, you've been nominated mm-hmm. for a Country Music Association of Ontario Awards. So, mm-hmm. uh, what is it like to to get that? Because so many artists will say, "Hey, you know, it, it's not about the awards." But at the same time, what does that do for you as someone who works in the industry? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, they're, both of them are fairly different, obviously, because one is a Canadian award and the, the Grammys are worldwide. So it's, um, and size of that award is a big deal. But, um, I mean, recognition after I've been doing this professionally for 34 years. So it's not, it's not like an overnight <laughs> success or anything. So it's a, it's, um, it, it's obviously an honor. You can't, you know, anybody would say they don't care about it. I, maybe that's after their fifth or something. I, it, it's a, it's a huge honor. It obviously is because of the, the, the Junos voted by a, um expert sort of committee of people and on recording engineering. So that's what I won for. And that was what the, the, the what my discipline is. So that's pretty awesome. And then the, uh, the Juno, it, I mean, the, the Grammy, I'm sorry, is um, uh, m- members of NARIS. So it's not like, you know, a committee of people sat around and said, "Oh, that's that's a nice record." Well, I mean, it's there's thousands of people that vote on these. And it's not just like a fan vote or anything like that. So it's people that, you know, in the know. So it's, it obviously means a lot. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> good, good, great to hear. We're talking with Dan Broadbeck, who is the coordinator in the music industry arts program at Fanshawe College, but has been a producer in London going back years and years. You worked with the Gandarvas at one point. Were, was that around the time they were doing Downtime? I love that song. No, it's prior to that. It's the, it's the one that was more famous. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. <laughs> Just being funny. Um, no, the the first two records I did, not the, not the third record. Um I did uh, the one with First Day of Spring on it, which was a pretty massive song in Canada, and, and uh, it still gets votes up there for like a, a can, can, best Canadian indie. I think it was like number fourteen once years ago, like of all time. So it's kind of for First Day of Spring. So that's kind of an iconic song for them. The video was a a big deal at the time too. It was about nineteen ninety four, I think it was something like that. Yeah, ninety four, ninety five, something like that. Wow, and then Headstrong and Helix and you name it. I mean, Dolores O'Riordan of the Cranberries. So this list is is varied, but at the same time, this is something we want to look at. We're looking at such accomplished bands, the Gandarvas, Headstrong, Helix, Dolores O'Riordan. Uh, the list goes on, but at the same time, these are, are bands that really cut their teeth, that the really took time with their craft. You, you don't just instantly, you know, jump onto the scene. And like you said, an indie record is the way that you had to go. In today's music world, how much of that kind of stuff has changed? Oh, it's pretty big, just because it's, in one way, it's kind of bad, in the other way, it's good. And, and I'll, I'll start with the bad, I guess, is that people release, stuff probably before um, they're supposed to. And when I say they're supposed to, I just mean before it's ready to be heard. If there's nobody in 
there to check. There's no producer or there's no there's nobody there saying, hey, 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 this isn't doesn't sound good enough. The songs aren't good enough. The arrangements aren't good enough. This is not up to snuff. You're potentially also wasting songs that are are, are possibly good. So you know, why would you put something out before it's ready? You know, you you wouldn't you know bring out raw chicken at a restaurant. Well, some people would, but I, you shouldn't. Should not. It's it, it's not you know it's it's the, it's similar to that. And and uh, in the older days, if you want to call it that, there was kind of only one way to do this. And that was to go in to save up money and go into a, uh, if you want to call it proper recording studio, and do it just you know with a with a hopefully professional. And uh, the good part about all of this is anybody can make a record, and the bad part about it is anybody can make a record. <laughs> so you know, I own a phone, so I'm no I'm no photographer, but I own a phone. That that doesn't mean I should be. I should have a gallery up with all my pictures of, you know, my lunch or whatever. So there's sometimes, there's a time to wait and let something get better. Not not before you're recording. Honestly, you, not before you're recording, but before you release something to the public, I think it should, you know, it should be good. It should be something you, you think, okay, well, you know, in five years from now, 20 years from now, this thing will be up there with my name on it, and it's not very good. So, and the problem is sometimes people just don't know it's not very good yet. I think that's the issue. There's no, there's no team in place to say, hey, maybe you should wait on this and don't release something that's really bad. So I, I think that's the bad part of it. The good part, obviously, is that music's there for anybody to release, and sometimes unlikely stuff can take off, and that's amazing. <laughs> no doubt. We are talking right now with Dan Broadbeck, Londoner, Canadian recording engineer and producer, Grammy Award nominee, Juno Award winner, and the coordinator of the Music Industry Arts Program. If you're just joining us, Dan, you were just talking about the fact that people have the ability to make music and get it out there, distribute it so easily, and that can sometimes not be the best idea. Can we take a minute just to talk about the job that music engineers and producers can do? You mentioned people who put things out too early. We hear the line, I like their album, but they aren't very good live. So... How often would you say someone records something that has potential and then is actually made better by the engineers and the producers? Oh, it happens all the time. Um, you know, and that's, that's, that's a tough one because if somebody's going to pay you to do something, your, your job is to make it as good as it could possibly be. So uh, this, isn't, this isn't really a technology thing as much. I mean, you can make somebody better than they are kind of now. But what they used to do in the old days was just replace everybody. And, you know, maybe the singer sang. So it's really the same thing. It's either the person's been made to sound better by editing it to death, or somebody's, in the older days, it was made to sound better by just replacing everybody on the record. And it just wouldn't say that the other people played on it. So that's always been done. And, and you just, you know, you're trying to make something really good. You're getting paid to do something really good. So, and you want to represent it the best it can be. And you're not there to play live. You're not there to be on the stage and tour with them and stuff. So there's only so much you can do. So um, it's difficult to say that it's, it's, of course, you do it. And I've done it a million times. I've done it with people that are very good, too. Made, I've done a lot of the work. And then sometimes I've had just sat back and not had to do a lot of work to make somebody sound really good because they are really good. <laughs> Now, what is it like to have that, where you've got so much of a thumbprint on something, and yet the kind of the accolades go their direction? 
Well, I think if you're in it, if you're looking for accolades, uh, you're probably in the wrong business, to be honest, as a producer, engineer, like a behind-the-scenes person. Um, when it says produced by with your name on it or engineered by, that that means a lot to me. So if that's on a credit that says produced by Dan Broadback, engineered by Dan Broadback, that I know what that means, and people in the know know what that means. And uh, I went into this side of the industry years ago because I quite honestly didn't care about being famous or being the person in the stage or getting all the all the accolades. And it doesn't mean anything to me. And I think if it does, then you might want to be the singer of the band and not be the producer or the engineer. You're doing it because the craft. You're not doing it because you want people to, to you know. I, I When people love something because they love the song, and if I engineered it or I produced it, I know that I had a hand in that. So I take pride in that as opposed to saying, hey, 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 look at me. I, I helped. You know what I mean? Dan Broadback joining us. Juno Award winner, Grammy Award nominee, Canadian record producer, and also the coordinator of the Music Industry Arts Program at Fanshawe College. You had a chance to work with Dolores O'Riordan of the Cranberries, and, and you did it for a long period of time. How did that even come about? I was referred when she was, um, she, she ended up living in Canada. Her husband was, husband was uh, is Canadian, so... They spent a lot of time here, and they were in Toronto working on stuff, um, sort of a break from the Cranberries, and I, they needed somebody to go do some kind of electronic work with them, you know, make electronic music with her beats and, and different interesting kind of electronic-based music. Um, that was the start anyways, and so it was a referral. Somebody phoned me and said, um, you know, do you want to do this? And it was supposed to be two or three days, not 12 years. So... Um, I went down and did that and, and pretended that I was an expert in that kind of thing, which I didn't really do, but I just pretended I was and um, showed up and started working. And it was like, well, I actually, we met first and went to drive up near to their cottage near Peterborough and we just worked. We just talked. She didn't really want to listen to any music. She just wanted to see if we hit it off personally because she figured if I was referred by a professional, I must be good at what I do. And there's nothing that's more important than the way two people get along when you're talking about making music. So it was more about hitting it off than it was anything else. So I spent, I went to, to Toronto and spent a day with her and just basically did what I thought I would do on a song. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I didn't know if I was just recording. I didn't know that I was going to give be given a tidbit of a song and then expected to complete the song it was like a strange test <laughs> sitting there so then it came i just see this my my role just kept, kept expanding you know I, she said i want to put drums on it do we need an engineer i said no i'm i'm a recording engineer so i did that and then she said uh she was going to get this other person to do the vocals and she said well i kind of want to give you a shot to produce the vocals and so i did that and then she said i i'm going to get a mixer or do you mix and i said well i guess i mix records for a living so it just kept going and going and going, and then eventually I was writing with her and playing a bunch of the instruments and stuff like that. So it just kept growing, and we hit it off. So it worked, so we kept doing it. Word of mouth in the industry. You would think, ah, no, word of mouth. It's word of mouth in anything, but in music, how strong is word of mouth? Oh, it's everything. I've never printed a business card in my life, so um, <laughs> uh, I have a couple. I have some at the school with my school stuff on it. So when we do an open house, I put the thing there. So those are used. But as a musician, I, I've had some printed once years ago. Like, I mean, way, way back and never gave them to anybody. I, don't ask me why, but I've been not much of a shameless self-promoter. I'm just, you know, most of it's word of mouth. So um, even if people look at the back of an album, 
and they find out how to get in touch with you somehow. That's pretty easy nowadays, obviously. If you just Google somebody, you can find out how to get in touch with them. So it's it's everything. So um, it's not, you know, you'll eventually maybe even have a manager or something in this business as a producer, but they don't get you jobs. People still contact you. They just manage the existing work. So it's 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 almost the only way to get work, really. We're talking with Dan Broadback. Dan, we could talk forever. One last thing, because I think people need to appreciate this. You mentioned that you know you played a number of the instruments. If you're going to be an engineer, if you're going to be a producer, how important is it to play a whole bunch of instruments? It's actually not. No. Um, it, no. It's my. It's my. Um... I mean, two very good friends of mine, I, I don't know if they play or what instrument they play, both, both very, very accomplished engineers and producers and stuff. So I, um, I see for the way I do it, I think it's important. So the way I work, I'm involved in a lot of the projects a little bit deeper than just maybe engineering, because a lot of records I've recorded, I've played on, not everyone, but um, I play guitar mostly. Um, but and I like the writing part of it, and I like all that. Maybe as a producer, obviously playing an instrument, you know, would be quite important because you have to speak to the the, the engineer. If you're not the engineer, you speak to the musicians properly and the artists, etc. And there's there's lingo in there to speak. You don't just wing it. So I, I think it's for the way I work, it's extremely important. But it's not the way everybody works because everybody has a different way of doing the job. So I I personally think, but. Like, I like all of it. I like the technical part. I like making stuff and fixing equipment and wiring stuff and making guitars. And I, I just like all parts of that bit. But that's just for me, not necessarily everybody's way of doing it. Maybe it makes me a little more employable, if you want to call it that, because I can do a few things, maybe. Oh, man. It's great to talk with someone who is in the right place in this world. You definitely have found the place you should be. So congratulations. Good luck with the Grammy nomination, and uh, maybe we can talk around the time of the Grammys. Excellent. Thank you. That is Dan Broadbeck. He is nominated for a Grammy, has already won a Juno. We always like to say on London Live, you never know whose voice you are going to hear. You never know who's going to stop by the studio. Well, right now, we are very lucky and very happy to welcome Chantal Kreviasek to London Live, a platinum-selling artist, a three-time Juno Award winner, and somebody who's in town to spread some holiday cheer. Chantal, how are things? Uh, pretty good, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. You're not battling a cold, are you? No, I just don't really talk much before the show. Okay, then we'll keep this short, <laughs> and we'll keep things very quiet. No, it's okay? fine. Go I ahead. promise. Go crazy. Go <laughs> well, you're, crazy. You are at the Aeolian Hall tonight, and you came out with a Christmas album not too long ago, last month, that has new Christmas songs on it and some old classics. Mm -hmm. um, how difficult is it to write Christmas music? I didn't find it a challenge at all. At all. I actually feel like maybe I kind of understand Buble now. I might have just been born for Christmas. <laughs> That's what it is. So wait a minute. Yeah. I mean, would you come up with a tune or do you come up with a theme thinking back about your own experiences in the holidays? I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> just happens. Just magical. I just play uh, what I would normally play, maybe. Okay. And then, and then I just think about relationships and 
and I think about, you know, my own, like, sort of development as a human being, and then I just, I sort of insert Christmas. <laughs> Works for me. Now, it does have a, a very interesting title to it, because yeah. there oh, are yeah. ten okay. tracks, and, and anyone who doesn't know the title, here it comes. Christmas is a way of life, my dear. Is there a story okay. behind that? No, you're, you're sort of the first person. You, that sounded very sort of, I don't know, um, conspicuous almost. <laughs> Christmas is a way of life. Pause. Bum, bum, bum. My dear. So I'm more curious about what you think of it. Well, last time you were in studio, you and Rain were here, and maybe that was maybe that's the whole ah. thing because you were talking about moon versus sun, and then Look you go out you. and you write this album, Look and I'm thinking uh, uh. I'm, I'm drawing conclusions here for sure. You're a riot. That's great. I like that. Well, maybe I wasn't speaking specifically to my husband. Maybe I was. Maybe I was I was probably saying a little bit more about what I have come to realize my purpose is and come to realize what my mission statement is. And I would say that Christmas is a way of life is probably my mission statement. <laughs> Love it. Okay, well, let's talk about some of your Christmas experiences. Did you have a family that sang carols that gathered around and did things like that? I mean, yeah, we had some, 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 uh, our brand of dysfunction for sure. And then we also had me playing the piano and everybody singing around. And my mom always had like all the sheet music and all the titles. And, and so we would sing all the classics and standards while I would play. And it was pretty cute. It was pretty cute. Even I can remember being a fully like, you know, angst filled teenager and that was still my jam so i've always loved that aspect for sure the angst-filled teenager plays christmas mm -hmm. favorites in mm -hmm. the holidays mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. would be something to hear mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I, had, I was like goffed out and everything and i was still <laughs> all about it really you you went through a goth phase oh oh my god my yeah no it's so bad yeah it was bad it was really bad it was hideous uh, but um yeah i know but you know it happens right i think it was right around 16 for a second just for a second. Yeah. That's healthy. Yeah. Well, it was kind of my interpretation of, of the music probably that I was I was starting to really um, attach myself to or identify with, I think, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> Chantel Kraviasek with us on London Live. Chantel is in town tonight and tomorrow at the Aeolian Hall and will be performing songs from... The name that I, I'm going to try and say a little bit differently this time, mm -hmm. Christmas is a way of life, my dear. Is there that, you is that better? Go. Oh, that's that was, how it's that supposed to be said. Less analytical, less, <laughs> I don't know, less, less, less loaded. Less loaded. Okay, I don't want to. I don't want to load anything that's not supposed mm -hmm. to be in there. So mm -hmm. let's go through some of the kind of the, the classics that you did choose to include. You've got Silent Night on this album. Mm -hmm. You have What Child Is This? You have mm -hmm. Blue Christmas. Mm -hmm. uh, Blue Christmas. Who did you do Blue Christmas with? My husband. Very nice. Mm -hmm. And your Love son it. is on this too, right? Mm -hmm. He has two songs on it. Yeah. And is this his first foray into something like this? Yeah, he just sings all the time. He sang since he was a baby. So he um, he finally went in the studio and sang at the mic, and he was like a little pro. It was hilarious. He had like one can on, and oh my god, he was he was a riot. So he's got the headphones, kind of one on, one off. Oh yeah, yeah he's, he's been watching amazing. then. I guess he's been watching. He was a genius. He's only eleven. It was so funny. He stacked <laughs> his harmonies, and he had all the melodies like boom, just great pitch, great ear. Um, yeah, he was incredible. 
So having seen that now, do you look at that and say, hey, there's some natural talent there. Do you think, okay, let's let's kind of leave it open for him to pursue this? Or I don't know. I mean, I don't really think about that stuff. No? You know? I just, no, not really, because there's, you know, the business side of the show, and uh, I don't really, I don't know. He's too little. I just don't like, I don't get it when people put their children Good. into show business. But, but I'm not judging them. You know what I mean? I think yeah. that these things might skip a generation a bit, maybe. Do you know what I mean? Like, I've been around the Wiener Factory too many times to want to put my kid in it a bit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I know exactly what you're yeah. saying. That's good. Let him be who he mm-hmm. is. Yeah, and he loves it. Don't get me wrong. But I think that he would, like, if I put it in front of him now, he'd be all over it. And I'm not sure that I want to do that just yet. Right. Yeah. Now, in terms of writing the songs that are, are not the what would be the Christmas classics, wonderful Christmas time that you do with your son, or, or as we mentioned, right. Blue Christmas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about the other ones? I mean, what what is it like to perform them? What do you feel from the audience? Well, I think the actual title track, um, Christmas is a Way of Life, My Dear, is um, it feels like a little pop banger, so it's fun, you know. And then the ones that are maybe more like, there's a song called I Want to Be an Angel, and there's a song called Overthinking. I think you could listen to those any time of year. I don't think you need to just listen to those during the holidays. So they just feel like I'm, perform- I'm like performing a new song of mine, and that's fun. Chantel Kraviasek with us. Chantel's at the Aeolian Hall tonight and tomorrow, and she will be performing. Do you basically go through this album during the show? Um, for the most part, yeah, I think the only, yeah, there's maybe only one thing that doesn't get played, and then I play some of my older standards, or whatever you call it, (laughs) as well, and that's, uh, that's, that's, it's a nice balance, I think. That's great. Now, Mm -hmm. do you get the audience singing back to you on, uh, on things like Blue Christmas? I'm not telling you anything else. (laughs) There is a very big surprise during the show. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's so much fun, so I'm just going to save it for for people to see. I don't really know that there's any tickets left. I feel bad. We're, like, talking about this show, and then there's not, I don't know if there's tickets. But You can't reveal the surprise. You have to hold surprises in. That's for the lucky ones who do have tickets. That's correct. Okay, that's good. Any big Mm -hmm. plans for the holidays? I mean, eventually this tour, which has been going on for a little while now, will, will come to a close. What are you guys up to? Well, it feels right now like planes, trains, and automobiles. I don't even know if I'm going to get home. But if I do, um, I plan to just collapse. And <laughs> and then, yeah, I didn't do anything really to get ready for Christmas. So um, I plan to just completely relax. Good. That's mm-hmm. that's what more of us need to do. We spend too mm-hmm. much time running around, and then you get to the end of it, and you think, that vacation, where, where, where'd that go? We still yeah. need that. Yeah, it's not right. Yeah, no, I really do need to just rest at some point, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. Okay. As a final note, because you were in here talking a little while ago about moon versus sun, what's the mm-hmm. reaction to that been? It's pretty incredible. It's by far the most rewarding. Um, most, it's the most high-impact response I've had to any of my projects, um, you know, since I was a newbie and um it's very meaningful um yeah i i i don't know it's it's pretty mind-blowing i can't believe we did it and um it was a wild way to start the year and a a really beautiful way to end the year i mean i don't know i guess that's life right you have your ups and your downs and you have your dark and your light and um maybe maybe the lesson is that we figure out how to tie it all together better you know i don't know but um it's the music of Moon vs. Sun is, is really beautiful, and so I'm, I'm so proud of that. And then I'm really proud of, of us for being making ourselves vulnerable on a totally um, next-level kind of level and, and, and inviting people 
into, um, you know, our dark moments so that they can feel less alone and maybe even take away something um, for their own personal growth. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's like I said, it's just a very rewarding project to watch people's lives being impacted. And, and anytime people just don't feel as alone, I think um, that's, that's, that's uh, great. You know, uh, especially, especially, you know, I, I watch some shows and I watch interviews and they say, oh, well, I'm really glad I did it because, you know, people feel less alone. Well, yeah, but you also turned, you also said it was, you also essentially said that they're not alone for being a psycho killer. And that's not what we did. We said, you're not alone for struggling. You're not alone for not knowing how to love properly, or you're not, you're not, you're not alone for not being perfect at your, at your style of loving, or you've not been shown it and you want to know and, and so I think that's what's so wonderful is that we're letting people know that that you're not alone for not knowing how, and you're also being given a chance to understand how to do it better. And yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, you've got such a great outlook on everything. Probably what makes your music so deep and so great. So Thank keep you so it up. Much. And Thank you uh, so much. thanks for making London a part of what is a fun ending to your year. So uh, yeah. enjoy tonight and tomorrow. I can't wait. I can't wait. It's the best venue. It's one of the best venues in the country. I'm excited to be there. Is it just the sound? Is that what you love about it? It's, it's just an, a wonderful vibe in that room and and uh, just, the, just the whole presentation and how they take care of an artist there and just all of it. It's wonderful. I can't well, wait. Great to have you in London. Enjoy the show tonight and tomorrow, Chantel. All the best through the holidays. I hope you get home and you get to collapse onto a comfortable couch somewhere. Well, I don't have a good couch, but I have a very good bed, so I will do that. <laughs> Collapse onto a comfortable bed somewhere. <laughs> have, have a happy holiday. Take care of yourself. Okay, bye-bye. That's Chantel Kreviazic. Platinum selling artist from Winnipeg originally and three-time Juno Award winner and really just somebody who has a tremendous outlook on everything. For all of the fame and success, she's married to Rain Maida who is the lead singer for Our Lady Peace. He's done some solo stuff as well. And they just have an incredibly talented household, and yet so very down-to-earth, so very appreciative of everything that they have had. And uh, it's always great to to talk with Chantel and catch up with her. And Moon versus Sun that we were talking about, if you don't know much about this, might be something that during the holidays you watch. Now, at the same time, it's real. You know, this is not this is not what we've been treating you to, thanks to W Network, with all of the fun holiday movies that are on. A lot of them take flack for following the same script. You know, some snowstorm forces somebody back into their hometown and they meet a long-lost love or the innkeeper who's just lost his long-lost love and they eventually get together on Christmas Eve and everybody lives happily ever after. They created Moon vs. Sun, and as Chantal said, it it was about showing people that you're not alone if you're going through some times as a couple that aren't completely smooth, or you are just going through parts of your life and you think, where am I? What am I doing? And it is very real. So it's it's great to watch, and I love that she's been getting the reaction that she has to it. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.